If you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 9. I can still remember how nervous I was the first time I was left alone with Kate. Now, Kate is my oldest daughter, so don't worry about where this story is headed. But when she was first born, my mother-in-law was staying with us. And she was an experienced mother with five children. She had other grandchildren. And she was a resident, uh, a registered nurse. And so as long as she was there, there was an expert in the house and all was well. I was calm. But the time came when my mother-in-law said, well, it's time for me to go. I said, no, you can't go. She said, no, I must go. And I dropped my knees. I begged. I said, please don't go. I mean, they require you to get a permit. And you have to drive with months with someone else before they'll let you drive alone in a car. And we were like barely permitted to be parents. What did she want to do? Kill her grandchild? But she left. Well, I quickly saw that Kathy was an outstanding mother. And she just, she just knew how to take care of Kate. But then Kathy got this crazy idea. And she came to me one day and she said, I've got to get out of the house. And I said, okay, go ahead, take Kate. No, no. I have to get out of the house alone. And I said, no, you can't do that. And she said, yes, I must get out of the house. I won't be gone long. I said, well, how long is long? 15 minutes? She said, no, a couple hours. A couple hours? Can't you wait till she's sleeping? You know, what am I going to do? I'm all alone. I'm nervous. There's no expert in this house. And so fear sees me. You know, what, what if something happens? Who will help me? What if I don't know what to do? What if she does a number two? Who will take care of that? I can't leave that for two hours. And so I hated this feeling of being left alone, being left on my own. But I survived. Kate survived. Kathy and I had four more children, and all of them have survived. And so it seems silly to me right now, uh, and strange and almost a, a little embarrassing that I ever had those feelings of being afraid, those feelings of being nervous, of being so utterly dependent on, on someone else. Because those are the feelings that we try to escape throughout the course of our lives. All of us strive to become independent very quickly because we know this. Everyone is going to leave us at some point. And that's just how it works. And so we learn from someone who teaches us, you know, what to do or how to do it with the goal that that person will eventually leave us on our own to do it on our own. And so we have apprenticeships, we have internships, we do student teaching, medical school students do rotations and residencies, always with the goal that we will eventually be left on our own to make it on our own. And in fact, we feel something is wrong with us when we can't do it on our own. So if that's the goal that we're working toward this morning, and I feel that for most of us it is, to be absolutely okay on your own, then you and I are working toward the wrong goal. Because the Lord has so something so much better for us than that. And if we are gripped by fear and all that comes with that of being left on our own and all alone, then we've got the wrong fear. Because the Lord has something much better for us than that. And I hope that's what we'll see as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 9 this morning. If you have your Bible open, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God from Deuteronomy chapter 9, beginning in verse 7. This is Moses speaking to the people gathered on the plains of Moab. 
Remember this and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. At the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. And then he told me, go down from here at once because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made a cast idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. And so I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. When I looked... I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. And so I took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands, breaking them to pieces before your eyes. And then once again, I fell prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water because of the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so provoking him to anger. I feared the anger and the wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me. And the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him, but at that time I prayed for Aaron too. Also, I took that sinful thing of yours, the calf that you had made, and burned it in the fire. Then I crushed it and ground it to powder as fine as dust and threw the dust into a stream that flowed down the mountain. You also made the Lord angry, at Tabera, at Massah, at Kibroth, Hatava. And when the Lord sent you out from Kadesh Barnea, Barnea, he said, Go and take possession of the land I've given you. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You did not trust him or obey him. You have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I have known you. I lay prostrate before the Lord those forty days and forty nights, because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land, he promised them. Because he hated them, he brought them out to put them to death in the desert. But they are your people. Your inheritance that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. Let's pray together. Well, again, we pray your blessing on the reading and hearing of your word that recounts your history with your people. Father, we're your people, and we pray that through the power of your spirit that indwells us, you would teach us this morning uh, the truth of your word. Lord, show us our hearts, uh, reveal to us. Uh, our own behavior, and uh, show us, Lord, where uh, the truth of your word needs to transform our lives. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated.
So keep your Bible open and look again with me at verse 7. Moses says there to the people, Remember this, and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. Now, it wasn't enough for Moses to say, Remember how you provoked the Lord to anger. It wasn't enough for Moses to say, Never forget how you provoked the Lord to anger. But instead, it was necessary for Moses to say, Remember and never forget how you provoked the Lord to anger in the wilderness. Look in verse 8. You aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. Why must Moses be so emphatic about these people remembering their sin and how they aroused the anger of the Lord? Well, it's for the sake of these people. These people need to see and to remember and to never forget, as we do, how grave a thing it is to rebel against God. It's a grave thing. Look at verse 14. God says, let me destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. That's how serious they're saying. Let me, let me just destroy them. Let me just wipe them from the memory of the human race, these rebellious people. So they are to remember what could have happened to them. They are to remember these people and to never forget what should have happened to them, what they deserved. See, when we look at the evidence on both sides, no just person would have acquitted these people for their behavior. Look at the evidence on God's side. He performed one mighty miracle after another to procure the release of these people from the life of bitter and cruel slavery that they suffered in Egypt. He powerfully and dramatically, you know the story, parted the Red Sea to ensure their final escape, their final deliverance to freedom and the destruction of the Egyptian army that was pursuing them. And when they reached the safety of the other side of the Red Sea, and when it was just them alone in the desert, every day a cloud led them on their way provided shade for them. Every night, a pillar of fire guided them, provided warmth for them and protection against all the creatures of the night. Every act of God done on their behalf, every act, an evidence an evidence of his love and his care, of his protection, of the provision of the Lord, that's the evidence that's on God's side. And that's the evidence upon which these people should have always put their faith always put their trust in the Lord. God did not and does not expect trust and faith from people before he demonstrates to them his trustworthiness. And so every mighty act he performed in Egypt to rescue them, every act of care for them afterwards was evidence that he loved them, that he could be trusted, that he would do for them what they could not do for themselves alone and on their own. Why then did these people, while Moses and God were together on the mountain, Moses receiving the covenant, writing the covenant down on stone tablets, why? When that was going on, in their benefit, on their behalf, did the people come to Aaron, the priest, and say, come, make us gods who will go before us. And why did these people then gather their gold together and make an idol in the shape of a calf and bow down and worship it? And why did these people say, these are your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt? Where's the justification for that behavior? 
What can they justifiably point to in the character of God and say, this is why we did it. You are this way. This is why we had to make that golden calf. They can cite no evidence. So the evidence is in. God is completely justified in his anger with these people. God would have been completely justified in destroying them and wiping them from the face of the earth. God gives and gives and gives. He loves and loves and loves. He protects and provides over and over again. With God, one amazing, awe-inspiring miracle follows the next to prove his love and to prove his faithfulness. And what does God get from his people in response? God gets to see and look and watch these people bow down, give their offering, give their devotion to this idol made of gold. Why should God not think, I've made a terrible mistake with these people. These people are beyond rescue. In spite of everything I have done, they will not obey, they will not believe. And so it makes perfect sense, if you look in verse 14, that the Lord would make this this offer to Moses. He says to Moses, forget these people, I will make you into a new nation, a bigger nation, a better nation, a stronger nation. It makes perfect sense. But that's not what happens. Having gotten this report from God about what's going on down below the mountain, what the people are doing, Moses goes down. And he sees how the people had sinned against the Lord. And verse 17 tells us that Moses took the two stone tablets that were in his hand, which were inscribed by the finger of God, and he threw them down in the presence of all the people. And they were broken to pieces. This is not a Moses lashing out in some uh, rash act of anger. That's always what I thought growing up. Look how mad Moses is. That's not what's going on. This act is highly symbolic. It's a highly dramatic act that emphasizes that these people are covenant breakers. Just as those stone tablets are broken. God had promised these people. He said, you will be my treasured possession. You will be a kingdom of priests. You will be, for me, a holy nation. That was God's part of the covenant. That was God's promise to them. Their part was that by faith they were to fully obey and keep the covenant of the Lord. And so when Moses told the people this good news, this is the relationship we get to have with God. We get to be his treasured possession. All the people responded and said, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will do everything the Lord has said. That was their part of the covenant agreement. But the broken pieces of stone And the broken words written on them were a visual demonstration of the faithlessness of the people. They broke covenant with God. And what's supposed to happen to you when you break covenant with God? What's supposed to happen? You are supposed to die. That's the consequence. Remember a few months back when we were talking about how God established first his his covenant with Abraham? He called Abraham and he said, Abraham, bring some animals and, and, and split these animals from, from one end to the other. And take the, the, the parts of those animals and, and lay them out opposite each other and form a, a pathway between them. And so Abraham did that. He got the animals, he split them, he laid them out. 
And when he had done that, God, in the form of a smoking pot, he came and he passed through the parts. And as God passed through those parts, he made promises to Abraham. That was the custom of the day, when you were making a covenant with someone. You passed through the parts, you made promises, and the point was this. If I ever fail to keep the promise that I have made to you, if I ever don't follow through, then be it unto me as you have done to these animals. Split me in two. That's what God and uh, was doing with Abraham. Making the covenant with him. And so we see that the covenant has been broken. Not by God, but by these people. And so what should happen to them? They should die. God should destroy them. But he does not. Why not? Look what our text says in verse 18. Moses said, I fell prostrate before the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and drank no water because of all the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and provoking him to anger. I feared the anger and the wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me. See, here is Moses interceding before the Lord on behalf of these people. Look in verse 25. I I lay prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. See, here is Moses interceding on behalf of Of these people. And what was the Lord's response to Moses' prayers of intercession? Look in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. At that time, the Lord said to me, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones and come up on the mountain. Also, make a wooden chest. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Then you are to put them in the chest. See, this is the Lord's response to Moses' intercession. The Lord does not destroy these people. In fact, he calls Moses to come back to the mountain. Bring two more stones with you. And Moses, I'm going to write again the same words that I wrote on those first stone tablets. He is renewing the covenant once again. And so all of this, all of this is what these people are to remember and never forget. They're never to forget the anger of the Lord. They are to remember always why the Lord was provoked to anger. They were covenant breakers. They were also to remember when the Lord was provoked to anger. At Mount Sinai, on the heels of one of the most dramatic displays they had ever seen, with thunder and lightning, with a thick cloud, with the blast of a trumpet so loud that people trembled with fire and smoke, and a mountain, a mountain for goodness sake, violently shaking, with the voice of God speaking in such a way that the people begged, please don't let us hear this voice anymore. That's what was going on. That's what they were experiencing. And right after experiencing that, that's when they broke their covenant with God. And if the people would break their covenant with God at this time, When then would they not break their covenant with God? And perhaps that is the point of this. We all cling to this seeing is believing idea. We believe that if the display is big enough, if the display is impressive enough, 
then we can convince our hearts and convince our minds to believe. But see, then the work comes from within us. In other words, I believe because it makes sense to believe. I see that I should believe, so I will believe. But it's as if God is taking all of that away from them here. Even the most spectacular display isn't enough. It is not enough to produce faith and trust in these people. That dramatic display did not prevent them from being what they were inclined in their hearts to be, rebellious and sinful. And that's clearly exposed by their eating and their drinking and their indulging in revelry around that golden calf. They need intercession. They need someone to pray for them. What's left to these people at this point? The stones of the covenant with the Lord, they lie shattered in pieces. Moses burned that golden calf. He crushed it and ground it into powder fine as dust. It's gone. What do they have left? They have nothing now but Moses. Standing between them and the Lord. Actually, laying prostrate before them and the Lord. Praying for them. Interceding for them. And so we have in Moses here a type. A picture of who Jesus will be and what Jesus will do. When you and I remember. When we never forget what happened to these people in the wilderness. And when we realize that looking at their hearts. And looking at their behavior is like holding a mirror up to our own lives and to our own hearts. And we are even more awed by how Jesus is exactly who we need him to be. We are people. We are people who cannot be left alone. We cannot be left alone. Moses leaves these people. He goes up on the mountain with the Lord and look what happens. Verse 12 says they quickly turned away from the Lord. Verse 16 said they quickly turned away from what the Lord had commanded. Left on our own and to our own, it doesn't take long, does it? For sin and faithlessness and disobedience to come along. So people who can't be left alone are never left alone. That's the good news. What are the very last words that Matthew records in his gospel? It's Jesus saying this, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus didn't tell his disciples, well, it's time for me to go. I've shown you what to do. I've shown you how to do it. I've taught you everything you need to know. Now you're on your own. That's not what Jesus says, is it? He says the opposite. I will never leave you. We will always be in an internship, spiritually speaking. Always be apprentices. You and I are never going to be experts in this life competent enough to be left on our own. And so we thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us all alone. The fear we have of being left alone or on our own, it's never going to happen. Jesus is never going to run out, even just for a couple of hours. If that were the case, always wouldn't be always. And what does Jesus say? I am with you what? What? always. Jesus never leaves us alone. He's with us because we need him to be with us. And so whatever you're doing, I know I do this. 
Whatever you're doing to prove to yourself or to prove to Jesus that you can handle it on your own, stop it. You can't. I can't. If we had the capacity to do it all on our own, Jesus wouldn't have to stay with us always, would he? So what you and I need to do is stick close to the one who sticks close to us instead of trying to distance ourselves from him and be independent from him. It is as if he's going to look down from heaven and look and say, oh, that a boy. Look, watch Craig. Watch him go. Lord, he prays and plays the piano and preaches and all that. I am so proud of him. It's not what the Lord is going to do. We need the Lord. We need him a lot. We need Jesus to be with us. And we need Jesus to be our mediator. Moses, on the mountain, becomes the mediator. Imperfect though he is, between God and these people. And he foreshadows there what Jesus will perfectly be. Because we are covenant breakers. Do you believe that? We are. We are sinful people. We are covenant breakers. Consciously. And unconsciously, in our lives, we break the divine will of a perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly gracious, compassionate, and loving and merciful God. What will save us from the wrath of God? What will save us from the wrath of God? The tablets of the law, they lie shattered on the ground. They can't help us. They're useless to provide salvation for us. Perfect obedience. All the idols of our lives, and every one of us in this room has some kind of idol, some kind of God replacement, a person or a thing that we go to first and most often before God. They can't help us. Those idols lie crushed to dust before God. They're unable to help us. Who's going to help us when it's just God and us alone? Only our perfect mediator. Everything else is useless. Only Jesus can stand between us and God. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. See, here is Jesus standing between us and God. He's the only one who can. He is the only one who can turn aside that well-deserved wrath of God. He gave himself for us. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned, not some, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation means the one who will turn aside the wrath of God and forgive sin. That's Jesus alone. 1 John 2, 2. Christ is the propitiation. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4, 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. A propitiation for our sins. Jesus alone is the mediator that stands between me and you and the Lord. And then we have here in this passage... This beautiful picture of Moses praying for the people. Aaron, their priest, failed the Lord, failed the people. He's the one who collected the gold and and made the idol. But Moses prayed. Hebrews 7.23 
says, now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Is that good news? Jesus always lives to pray for, to intercede for you and for me. Right now he lives. And while he lives, he prays. Hebrews 7 continues. Such a high priest meets our need. One who's holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins. And then for the sins of his people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. That's what Jesus did for us. He's in heaven right now. He's really there. Acts chapter 1 verse 9 describes what happened. He was talking to the disciples. And he had finished telling them everything he needed to say to them. He was taken up into heaven and a cloud came and hid them. Hid him from their view. Jesus ascended into heaven. Right now, in the presence of the Father interceding for us. And so Colossians tells you and me to set our hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. There is Jesus at the right hand of the Father, always interceding on our behalf. That doesn't mean that, that Jesus is attempting to convince a reluctant father to save us. As if God was saying, I do not want to save that person. But Jesus is saying, yes, please, I insist. In fact, I plead with you to please save that person. You know, last week we sang the song Arise, because I thought I was going to get to this point, but you know me and I didn't quite make it. But those words talk about the wounds of Christ that strongly plead for us. And sometimes when you and I use that word plead, we attach a connotation to the word that does imply reluctance. Because you and I only plead with someone that we think is unwilling to help us. Listen, God wants us saved. God wants us saved. That's why he sent Jesus. And Jesus' living presence is a constant reminder in heaven, in the presence of the Father, that the price for sin has been paid and the perfect sacrifice has been made. That God's divine justice, which gave him the right to destroy those people in the wilderness for being covenant breakers, which gives God the right to destroy you and me for being the sinful people we are, to to blot us out from under heaven. That divine justice was satisfied by Jesus. He paid the satisfactory price for that kind of sin and rebellion once and for all. And so Jesus' living, physical presence in heaven in his human body, it's always a celebration, always a celebration in heaven. A celebration of the victory over sin and death. A celebration of what Jesus was willing to do and what Jesus did do. A celebration that salvation is now secure for God's people. Intercession isn't a picture of Jesus begging the Father to do something he's reluctant to do. God loves to do this.
And he delights that he can do this because his son is never out of his sight. And when God the Father looks at his son and he sees his physical body there, something that was not in heaven before, God sees the entire plan of salvation accomplished. The eternal Son of God putting on flesh, leaving his home in heaven, coming to earth, living a perfect life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice, giving himself to be that sacrifice, the scars of that sacrifice on him still, all of those things declare constantly that the price of sin has been paid and the Father can give us salvation that's full and free. This is always going on. Is this good news? Jesus says in John 5, My Father is always at work, always at work to this very day, and I am working too. Jesus never takes a day off. Never takes a day off. Always at work. Always praying for us. Doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves, but what he delights to do for us. How much must the Lord love you to do this for you? Even when you aren't aware he's doing it, he's doing it. Even when you're asleep, he's not. Scripture tells us that the one who watches over us never slumbers, never sleeps. If we didn't need him to do it, he wouldn't do it. But we need him to. I need him to. You need him to. We need him to be with us. We need him to mediate between us and God. We need him to pray for us always. And so we can stop trying to reach a place in our lives that's, that's good enough that we don't need him to pray for us. When will you ever not need the Lord to pray for you? When? Never. Always we will need the Lord. When will you ever be okay to be left on your own? Never. Always we need the presence of the Lord. So who might you be confident to be? Who might you be confident to be? Knowing you have a Savior who accepts you. Knowing you have a Savior who is praying for you always. Knowing you have a Savior who is eager to, to pour out on you all the blessing that he has learned. To apply it to your life. To give to you the abundant life that you can find in him. What might you be brave enough to do? What might you be brave enough to do knowing that the Lord is with you always? Knowing he never asks you to do anything alone, but always with him. It's something to pray about. Let's pray together now. Father, we do pray about these things. We thank you for the truth of your word that speaks your truth to us. Lord, realities beyond our ability to comprehend. Heaven is a place beyond our ability to comprehend. Lord, the reality that you, in the form of a man physically right now, the form that you had here on earth, you now live and reign in heaven. You are at the right hand of your Father. And from there, you pray for us. Right now, in this moment, Lord, as I'm praying, you are praying for us. We thank you and we praise you that you love us enough. You care about us enough to pray for us. Father, we thank you for the plan of salvation. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to be the mediator, 
to stand between us and the wrath of God. We thank you that you did that. It's an accomplished fact. It's all finished. And now because of what you have done for us, we can now come boldly into the presence of our Heavenly Father, where we are welcomed and received. So we thank you for that. We thank you that your prayers for us never stop. And so I pray now, Lord, that as these truths that are difficult for us to understand are applied to our hearts by your Spirit, that it would really change and transform us. How different we should be when we think about who you are, what you have done, and where you are. How different we should be. How different we should be knowing, Lord Jesus, that you are praying for us always. How different we should be knowing that we are never alone. Fear should always be gone because our Lord and our Savior is always with us. You never leave us, even for a moment, to figure it out on our own. Who should we be? What should we be? What should we do because of these realities? Reveal that to us, Lord, as a church and as individuals, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.